0: Joe Cole was born April 10th, 1961, to father actor Dennis Cole and mother Sally Bergeron. His father Dennis was a fairly recognizable actor in the 60s and 70s. He kind of had this ruggedly handsome, chiseled blonde-haired California surfer look to him, despite the fact that he was born in Michigan. He moved to Hollywood, California in the early 60s and found work as a model for several men's magazines, as well as work as a stuntman. He had his first big break in television in 1966 when he landed the role of a detective on an ABC police drama called Felony Squad, which ran for three years. Through the 70s and 80s, Dennis appeared in several television series, including Breakin's World, Medical Center, Police Story, Fantasy Island, Trapper John M.D., Murder, She Wrote, Barnaby Jones, The Love Boat, The Streets of San Francisco, Three's Company, and Charlie's Angels. His only son, Joe, was from his first marriage. Joe lived in the beachside community of Venice, California. Known for its world-famous, vibrant boardwalk, Venice has a bohemian spirit about it, Its beach is lined with upscale businesses and homes. The boardwalk is where you can find exclusive shops, street performers, and beautiful murals. There's a skate park, an outdoor gym called Muscle Beach, unique dining experiences, stylish boutiques, and coffee bars. The town is buzzing all year round. And for many, many years, artists, writers, and musicians call Venice home. And Joe he fit right into the Venice Beach community but he apparently lived in one of the toughest parts of Venice the neighborhood of Oakwood like his father Joe was an aspiring actor and a photographer he was also part of the road crew for black flag and then the Rollins band having been working together for quite some time Joe and frontman Henry Rollins were best friends, and they became roommates. Joe at the time was a documentarian working on a project involving the lives of homeless Vietnam veterans, and Henry, who was a writer, was helping Joe with his project. Of it, Henry would say, Those men you see talking to themselves, standing next to payphones on streets, Joe would bond with these people. Where they wouldn't normally give you the time of day, they would tell the stories of their lives to Joe. Henry Wallens was born Henry Lawrence Garfield on February 13, 1961, in Washington, D.C., and is the only child of Iris and Paul Garfield. And on his father's side, he's of Jewish ancestry. When he was three... His parents split up and he was raised by his mother in Glover Park, an upscale neighborhood of Washington, D.C. Henry had experienced a tumultuous childhood that carried over into his teen years. He was sexually assaulted during his childhood all the way up until he was a teenager. He struggled with issues including low self-esteem and depression. Around the age of nine, Henry was diagnosed with hyperactivity and was prescribed Ritalin for many years so that he would be able to maintain focus in school. Henry attended the Bullis School which at the time was an all-boys preparatory school in Potomac, Maryland. He would credit the school with helping him build a strong sense of discipline and a productive solid work ethic and it was also during this time that he began writing. By the time he was 18 Henry was completely estranged from his father. After high school, Henry went to American University in Washington, D.C., but that was short-lived. He ended up dropping out after one semester. He took a number of low-paying jobs in the Washington, D.C. area, and it was during this time that he developed an interest in punk rock music when one of his friends was listening to the Ramones debut album, From 1979 to 1980, Henry found work as a roadie for some local punk bands, one of them being the Teen Idols. When their lead singer started becoming a no-show, Henry was able to talk them into giving him a chance to front the band. And he was good. His singing abilities started to spread, and he soon was being asked to come on stage with other bands. By 1980 with another local punk band who had just lost their frontman, Henry was able to get together with them and form his own band called State of Alert, becoming their vocalist and frontman. They disbanded after only one album and a handful of concerts. It was during this time, Henry had landed a job as an assistant manager at Hagenda's, which is what helped him pay for the cost of putting together State of Alert's album. In 1980, Henry was gifted Nervous Breakdown, an album by punk band Black Flag, and he quickly became a fan. And before long, they all were friends. Henry basically followed them up and down the East Coast when they toured that side of the country. What Henry didn't know is that the band's vocalist really wanted to be on guitar, and they were actually looking for someone new to front the band. They liked Henry, and they thought his singing and stage presence was a perfect fit. So after a semi-informal audition in New York, they asked Henry if he wanted to be their new vocalist. Of course he said yes. After joining the band, he quit Hagenda's, sold his car, and headed west to Los Angeles, and decided to use the stage name of Rollins. He played his first official show, as a member of Black Flag, on August 21st, 1981, in Costa Mesa, California. But after several years of what I guess could be called generically as creative differences, Black Flag disbanded in August of 1986, and by 1987, Henry formed the Rollins Band. And it was during this time Henry and Joe met, Joe was part of the road crew for both Black Flag and the Rollins Band. Henry has been a writer for the publication LA Weekly, and he has written about Joe several times, so much of the following details comes from those articles, as Henry has told it. He would describe himself and Joe as being so much alike and so different at the same time. They experienced this sort of phenomenon of being simultaneously curious and revolted by things around them. And they would kind of sort out their frustrations and confusions about all these topics with in-depth conversations that seemed to never end and being on the road, traveling from show to show, when on tour with black flag. They had a lot of time together. They drove all over the country and they passed the time with these conversations. Much of it evolving around pessimism and negativity to the point that it just became a lot of nonsense in the end. Together they would eventually lay down some roots in the city of Venice. Henry had written about a time that the two of them had this idea that they wanted to go check out Richard Ramirez. You know, the Night Stalker. His murder trial was going on in Los Angeles, so the two of them thought it would be kind of a fun and surreal experience to go down to the Los Angeles courtroom and sit in on one of the days of his trial. They got in line, and they went through the metal detectors, and while doing so, they met some of Ramirez's fangirls. Joe was asking the girls a bunch of random questions, and... They were happy to oblige, and the more and more questions he asked, the more enthusiastic they seemed to get. They really acted like Richard Ramirez was akin to a celebrity, kind of like a rock star. Henry wanted to jump in and point out that the guy was kind of a serial killer, and what in the world were they attracted to, but he decided to leave the questioning up to Joe. They were finally let into the courtroom, and not too long after, Richard Ramirez himself was ushered in, chained at the waist and ankles. After he took his seat, he turned around and glanced at all of the girls pining after him. Dreamers, don't you guys think it's kind of strange that fangirls were allowed in the court, disrupting proceedings like this? It feels kind of disrespectful, especially to the victims' families. Well, anyway, when court adjourned, Joe and Henry walked out first, and the press gathered outside. The two of them approached reporters and asked them what they'd like to know about the proceedings, and the press basically told them the to F off. At least, that's how Henry tells it. So, fast forward to December 10th, 1991, Joe and Henry had walked one block to a 24-hour market to get a few groceries. This was something they did quite often. It was a part of their routine. In a 1996 interview with Unsolved Mysteries, Henry said, You get into your little rituals when you live in a community. You go wash day is Friday, chicken on Sunday, all that. For a predator, for a robber, this is what they go on. They need habit. And this was their so-called habit, going to this all-night grocery store. As they headed home, groceries in hand, they were approached by two men. Each one had a gun pointed at their faces, just outside their house. One of the men shoved Henry, making him get down into a prone position and the other man forced Joe to lay down on the ground. The man who had the gun pointed at Henry told him if he yelled or screamed, he was going to blow his head off, to which Henry replied, OK. When taking what money Henry and Joe had between them, the robbers became agitated that they only had less than $50 between the two of them, and so they demanded they go inside their house and give them all the money they had in there. They asked if anybody was home and Henry lied and said, yes, my roommate's home, he's watching TV. But the gunmen weren't deterred by that at all. Henry's mind started spinning as he was trying to think of some way of getting them out of the situation. As he put it, it's not as if you're going to go for some movie stunt like grabbing the gun and wrestling around. That's fiction. One of the men led Henry into the house while Joe remained outside. Henry was fairly certain that these men were going to bring them both inside, shoot them to death, and they would be allowed to ransack the house, all the while taking their sweet time. They made no effort to disguise their faces, so they knew Joe and Henry would be able to identify them. As Henry walked in through the front door, the gunman, was closely behind him, he started to hear some sort of scuffling on the porch outside. And then he heard a gunshot. Henry stood there for a moment, for a very quick moment. And that moment that he heard the gunshot, his hands were still in the air, and he thought about how strange that gunfire sounded in the room that he was standing in as the sounds reverberated throughout the house and it was in that split second moment Henry bolted he ran through the house exited out a back door and sprinted down the alley he was shot at once but they missed and the gunman fled the scene Henry found a phone and called 911 assuming that the gunman had taken off He went back to where he and Joe had been first accosted and found him there on the ground with a single gunshot wound to his head. By the time police arrived, the gunmen were gone, and so was Joe. He was 30 years old. Henry was handcuffed and placed in the back of the police squad car. He was detained and questioned until they were certain that he had no involvement in his friend's murder. Detectives investigating this case interviewed hundreds of people who resided in the Oakwood community. They had a strong conviction that the gunmen lived in the area as they were on foot and it was kind of late at night. They didn't have a car and there was no buses running at the time. Investigators were certain that these were the kinds of guys that would talk about their crime or brag about it, especially if they came to realize that they had robbed someone kind of famous. Detectives strongly felt that someone out there must know something. For Henry, he would say of Joe's death, When someone dies in this way, it's not just a loss of life. There's a mother, there's a father, then there's all of us. The friends who lost this fantastic person. And you never recover from it all the way. You always carry some of it in you. And it wrecks you. Year after year. As mutilated a concept as justice is in this country, and how it only seems to benefit a certain skin color in a certain economic place in America... Real justice is a pretty righteous thing, and I'd like to see it done and exacted on these individuals. And Joe's dad, Dennis, he said, there is not a day that goes by that I don't think about him, and we'd always share things, and it's like I have no one to call up and say, hey Joe, guess what happened? And he would do the same thing with me. It's like a part of your heart is just taken and pulled out. The only justice that can be done here is to get those guys off the streets so they don't do it to your friend or your sister or your parent or your child. Joe's dad, Dennis, died November 15, 2009, almost 18 years after his son, never learning the identity of the man who took his only child's life. In speaking about the moment he was being marched into their home at gunpoint, Henry said that he thought he wasn't ever going to leave that house alive again. It was strange being walked into your house at gunpoint because it was like I didn't wonder if I was going to die. I knew I was going to be executed. I was terrified. But in that time... There was something that was pretty unterrifying about it. It was very ultimate. If I said, Come on, man, he'd say, Yeah, right, and bang. I had a gun to my back and my hands up, and I went along. I didn't hope for the best. I couldn't hope. I mentioned Henry being detained by the police after the shooting, as he became the prime suspect in Joe's murder. I was arrested and held for 10 hours, he said. And since then, they've been interrogating me as to how much cocaine we were moving out of the house. They're dealing with someone who's never even tried cocaine, never even really seen cocaine. So for me, trying to legitimize myself to this cop, and Dreamers, by the way, he didn't say cop, but I don't want to say what he referred to the officer as. So for me, trying to legitimize myself to this cop who's going, Come on, Henry, we're not trying to bust you. Just tell the truth. Are we talking kilos or what? Those guys just didn't get it. The strongest thing that came into our house was Tylenol and coffee. I am a total lightweight on that level. And in the months following Joe's death and Henry's search for the meaning of it all, he would say, You kill someone, they're dead. You step on a bug, kill it, it's dead. That's it. You rot. Make good soil for someone's tomato garden, and that's it. I don't believe in karma. I don't believe in any of that because my friend died for nothing. I can't find a single reason why he died except that someone shot him and that's it. I mean, he came from the store. That's what he did. That's what we're guilty of. Coming back from the grocery store. That's what he did to die. As Henry's lyrics are often angry, he was also filled with anger in the wake of Joe's death as well. Sometimes when I catch myself having a really good time or enjoying something, I have a tendency to check myself and say, should I really be grinning this much? I'm not really all that experienced with death. I wasn't in Vietnam. I know people who had everyone blown up next to them. I know people who killed more people than they can remember. I'm not bragging. I'm saying I know people who really know about death. I don't. I've only had one guy die next to me. The fact that Joe was murdered where he was murdered was always a shock to Henry despite the fact that they lived on kind of the bad side of town of it he'd say Venice is like one big small neighborhood no one ever talks to each other but everyone knows who everyone is there is an unwritten law in Venice I lived on Brooks Avenue which bisects fifth and a big part of the middle of Venice called ghost town It's like Venice Shoreline Crips. Crack, guns, dead bodies, helicopters, high-speed chases. But if you're on the other side of 5th, you're not in Ghost Town. If you're not past 5th, you're not looking to buy drugs. They know that. And if you're in the neighborhood, you're in their neighborhood. It's really cool because if you want trouble, like... You never really would, but if you did, all you'd have to do is take 10 steps over 5th, and all these guys would be looking at you saying, Are you crazy? Don't you know this is ghost town? Go 10 steps back, or I'm going to have to shoot you. Me and Joe, we used to take our bikes and go through ghost town to the beach to go work out on the chin-up bars. We used to call it running the gauntlet. You get all the speed you can for the two blocks before 5th, So by the time you get to ghost town, you're hurling down and there are these guys trying to get in front of you or slow you down going, hey dude, hey dude, come here. Yeah, right. But the drag is, one night, ghost town came to visit. The guy who wasted Joe probably lived five blocks up from my house. So I basically lived in a hip ghetto. You go two blocks to the left and you're in baby Beirut. Back up and go two blocks to the right and you're at Dennis Harper's house. Two blocks past that and you're bumping your nose into Arnold Schwarzenegger's parking space at World Gym. Literally, Ghost Town ends at the end of Arnold Schwarzenegger's Jeep. Go two blocks from that Jeep and I don't even think old Arnold would want to deal with that. They'd be like, oh yeah, Terminator, right? Boom. I moved the next day because I didn't want them coming back to finish me. Henry moved to the city of Hollywood. Henry had somewhat of a theory when it came to this crime. A few days before the robbery and the shooting of Joe, the guys that had a visitor at their house, a gentleman by the name of Rick Rubin, record producer and former co-president of Columbia Records, co-founder of Def Jam Records and American Recordings, a key figure in the popularization of hip-hop music, named MTV's most important producer of the last 20 years in 2007, and was on Time Magazine's list of 100 most influential people in the same year. He's worked with countless artists, ACDC, Beastie Boys, LL Cool J, Run DMC, Aerosmith, Adele, Black Sabbath, Eminem, Jay-Z, Johnny Cash, Justin Timberlake, Lady Gaga, Linkin Park, Metallica, Rage Against the Machine, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Shakira. You get the picture. He's kind of a big deal in the music industry. So Rick was a fan of the Rollins Band. And he wanted to hear some of their newest recorded material. So he stopped by Joe and Henry's Venice house, parking his Rolls Royce outside. And because they lived in a seedier part of Venice, Henry suspected that someone noticed the expensive car and the flashy guy walking into their home and put two and two together, that these guys must have a lot of money inside their house. Which is why, Henry surmised, when they were initially robbed and they were only found to have less than $50 on them, those guys wanted to be taken inside. Henry even recalled that that same evening Rick Rubin had visited, that he jotted down in his journal his concerns about his place possibly being targeted now that they had that fancy car parked in front of their house that day. As for me, dreamers... I get where Henry was coming from. Although I do feel like some of his musings are a little bit of a reach. Places in my mind just wouldn't go there, given even a tragedy like this. I get the anger and the resentment and the frustration, especially as this case continues to this day to be unsolved. I can't say how I would react in a similar situation. I haven't known a friend, or had anyone for that matter, be murdered. That always takes the loss to a very different level than if it were just an accidental death, which I have experienced. That's all I can compare my feelings to, and for me, I grieve a lot. Sadness overwhelms me, and I think I'd feel the same. Especially with an unsolved case. My feelings of sadness would overshadow feelings of anger, as who was there to be angry at? I can't say that for certain, and I don't really want to find out. In a 1992 interview with the Los Angeles Times, Henry said that he has a plastic container that's filled with the soil that absorbed Joe's blood where he died. Stating, I dug up the earth where his head fell. He was shot in the face. I've got all that dirt in there. So Joe's in the house. I say good morning to him every day. I've got his phone too. So I've got a direct line to him. And that feels good. Every year, Henry thinks of his friend on his birthday and he would have turned 57 last month. He wrote about Joe in LA Weekly in 2013, and I wanted to share his thoughts with you. They do get mildly political and possibly offensive, so email Henry if you take issue with this. Joe Cole's murder gave me a powerful tutorial on guns in America, The United States is full of some of the most resourceful, generous, and hardworking people I have ever encountered. Yet statistically, America is a nation of killers and the killed. We have a familiarity and fascination with guns, murder, and those who kill. From soldiers to serial killers, we study, immortalize, fanaticize, and fear them. Try driving the streets of Los Angeles without seeing a billboard depicting a film with the lead actor holding a gun. It's almost as if guns are harmless props used to bring out the cheekbones and jawline of the screen star. It's hard to think of a leading man who hasn't at one time posed with a gun. Guns are a part of the American identity While guns are constantly in the hands of wealthy actors, their more meaningful use is often by those several rungs down the fiscal ladder. These are the people who live in other America. The one that Wayne LaPierre warns you about and implores you to arm yourselves against. By the way, Wayne LaPierre is the CEO and Executive Vice President of the National Rifle Association ever since 1991. You can pass all the gun legislation you want. None of it will make me feel any more or less safe than I do right now at this moment. The murder of my friend taught me that America is a 50-state-wide killing field. None of that red-state, blue-state BS means a damn thing to me. As soon as I leave my house, I'm on the kill grid. If I'm anywhere in America, as far as I'm concerned, it's game on for murder one. Dead bodies at crime scenes sometimes look ridiculous. People often fall and land in positions reminiscent of a game of twister gone awry. They look lonely and small, like the punchline of an elaborate and incredibly cruel joke. The morning after the murder, I was released by the police after being held overnight, as apparently it's common with witnesses. I went back to the front lawn of the house I was renting where Joe was killed. I had to clean up his remains before his parents arrived. There I was, my friend's blood and brains all over my hands, trying to figure out what to do with this human matter. Do I throw out the bloody towel? Wash it? Bury it? What about the water in the bucket or the bucket itself? I felt completely stupid and worthless at that moment. Joe Cole, who spent the last several seconds of his short life in pathetic animal panic, had perfect taste in music. He was completely connected to the main stem. Hendrix, Stooges, sabbath coltrane like that he was a way out guy a total space brother he had lots of friends yet was very alone and his killer has never been caught in the weeks and months after his murder i was inundated with letters of condolences and sadly stories from other americans who had been through The American Gun Homicide Experience. Some of these stories would peel the paint off your car. The instances of sadness, loss, and horror expressed in these letters was unbearably heavy. It was perhaps the pointlessness of the deaths that was the hardest part to deal with. The convenience store that suddenly turns into a blood-splattered box with a young fiancé lying on the floor. Someone gets a phone call and everything changes, forever. As the years after Joe Cole's murder passed, I started to understand that the crime component in America was a massive revenue stream. The military-industrial complex, the prison-industrial complex, Hollywood, all thrive on constant conflict as the standard modus operandi without the threat of violence and the fact of violence the American machine as we know it would cease. as a demographic the ones doing the large part of the killing are also doing a large part of the breeding much of the time they kill each other locally A Los Angeles policeman once characterized this as the self-cleaning oven. Gun manufacturers and their lobbyists don't live in these places or know where they are. Beyond the point of purchase, they don't care. I'm neither pro nor anti-gun. I'm gun conscious. I live in America. I know I can get taken out almost any time, anywhere. I don't subscribe to the John Wayne concealed carry BS. They're the ones who shoot themselves in the balls and bleed out in the church parking lot. It's almost funny. I've reconciled myself to the hard fact that I live in a country of consequences. I'm all for background checks, yet completely understand why Wayne LaPierre isn't. It steps on his client's cash flow. I happen to think that selling a gun to a person with mental health issues is a bad idea. I also think that when someone becomes a gun owner, they often acquire some mental health issues. The lunatics have not taken over the asylum. They own it. As your birthright, you are a life member of the great American gun show. I sometimes catch myself wondering what Joe Cole would have made of the Internet cell phones and downloaded music so much has changed in America since he was murdered and a lot hasn't Joe was like thousands of other Americans he was shot and killed by another American I assure you if he were somehow able to read his own obituary he would not be at all surprised as to how he went out This is who we are. The two men who robbed Joe and Henry were African American. The man who shot and killed Joe is described as being born sometime between 1966 and 1971. So approximately 47 to 52 years of age today. About 5 feet 11 and 165 pounds with brown eyes and black hair. Last I could find, there is still a $25,000 reward being offered, leading to the arrest and conviction of Joe's killer. The LAPD tip line is 877-527-3247. Thank you for joining me for this bonus episode of California Dreaming, and until next time, sweet dreams.